Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. Check out the new website, at ldshmaps.org. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 47, A Brief Respite. We closed the last episode with the Emperor Heraclius exultant after an astonishing series of campaigns that outmaneuvered King Khosrow II and saw the negotiated return of all the eastern provinces. The sight of the Augustus entering Jerusalem with the true cross was as emotional a triumph as any Roman emperor had ever experienced, and I thought it was only fair to let Heraclius have his day in the sun before we let reality give us a cold, hard slap across the face. Because as impressive as the emperor's victory was, his empire was a mess. There were no Roman troops left in the Balkans. Slavic tribes were settling down, turning Romans off their land. The Avars had carried off the portable wealth of the north of the peninsula, and there was nothing standing between a hostile force and the gates of Constantinople. The eastern provinces had spent between 10 and 18 years outside of the imperial system. In some cities, therefore, a whole generation had grown up outside of Romania. They would have continued to farm and trade and pay tax to their new masters, but doubtless found alternative ways of doing things, or profitable loopholes while imperial agents were absent, And similarly, many in the East were now used to enjoying their Monophysite worship, free of persecution or interference by the government. And as I've been reading, I've wondered about women who had Persian boyfriends or shopkeepers who brought in special foods who suddenly had to say goodbye to men they had lived alongside for a decade. In other words, the world had not stood still and waited for the war to finish, and it would be no easy thing to reintegrate those provinces into the empire. And of course, a war that lasted nearly 30 years left devastation and dislocation everywhere. The cities of Anatolia were in ruins, with many others suffering from a return of the plague. The churches of the empire were stripped bare to pay for the armies, 
and thousands of refugees would now have to decide if they should return home or if their new locations offered better prospects. The hardest part of Heraclius's work might have been over, but the next phase was not going to be easy. Heraclius spent much of the next few years in the east, a good deal of that time at Edessa, but probably also at Antioch and Emesa. He clearly felt he needed to be present near the border with Persia to supervise the exchange of prisoners and manage the return of the army to a peacetime deployment. He also wanted to be on hand to help guide the reintegration of the whole east. And remember that we know the war is over, but Heraclius couldn't be sure of that. There were about 13 claimants to the Sassanid throne over the next few years before finally Yazdegerd III took over in 632. With peace tentatively taking hold, Heraclius turned to administration. As you can imagine, there were innumerable claims of mistreatment and demands for compensation or allegations of corruption thrown around by the citizens of the East, which the emperor had to wade through. The financial situation was precarious. We found inscriptions on buildings which the emperor commissioned in Cyprus and back in Constantinople, so Heraclius did begin to spread what wealth he had at his disposal. And yet it seems like the booty he'd brought back from Persia was not nearly enough to immediately repay the church for their large donations. Out in the east with the emperor was a new official, who seems to have been a creation of the emperors, the Sacellarios. The Sacellarios was a new finance minister, a sort of comptroller of state finances. The name comes from the Greek word for bag, or in this case, pouch, money pouch. In other words, the official in charge of the emperor's purse. You may remember that there were various ministers of the treasury, but the two most important, those who gathered and raised the taxes, were the Praetorian prefects, the prefect of Illyricum and the prefect of the East. We don't know how the government functioned on a day-to-day basis during the war, so it's not clear at what point the office of Praetorian prefect ceased to be as it once was. However, it's not hard to see why the role would eventually disappear. All that was left of the Balkans was Thessalonica, southern Thrace, and a few coastal towns while most of the East had disappeared from imperial control for a decade or more. The prefect couldn't perform his usual functions under these circumstances. Heraclius made plans for a census of the whole empire, so perhaps the office would have been resurrected if the empire had stayed together. But for the foreseeable future, the Sacellarios was the key financial minister in the empire, and it's significant that he was out in the east during this period, trying to get Romania's battered infrastructure back into working order. The major drain on the empire's resources was the army, but of course the attrition of the war had left it smaller than it needed to be. So to save money was difficult, as new men had to be recruited. Heraclius split the army he had up into its constituent parts and sent them back to their bases. So it seems like the armies of the east and of Armenia resumed the positions they would have occupied at the start of the century, 
and those that were left over would have returned to Anatolia to form the armies in the emperor's presence. The one way that money could be saved was to release any mercenaries or other allies from their duties, and this included cutting funding to all Arabs currently on the imperial payrolls. The significance of that is allied to the fact that imperial authorities in Syria and Palestine also made attempts to clamp down on Arab smuggling and enforce payment of proper import duties, duties which had been lax or non-existent at times under the Persian occupation. It's worth saying that during the last 20 years or so, Italy and Africa had been left largely to their own devices. The emperor kept up a correspondence with his appointees, but he had little way of enforcing his will. In fact, one report says that he asked for troops to be sent from Numidia to Egypt, as he couldn't spare any more troops to reinforce Alexandria, and the order was apparently ignored. Also, while Heraclius was preparing to invade Mesopotamia back in 627, news would have reached him that the Visigothic king Swintilla had eliminated the last Byzantine holdings in Spain. Back in the capital, Heraclius had arranged a marriage for his son, Constantine III. His daughter-in-law would be Gregoria, the daughter of his cousin Nicetus. It's possible that the two men had agreed on this marriage back when they began the civil war. But it's still interesting to note that Heraclius would not seek to make a marriage alliance with some powerful family or another general. Despite all that he'd achieved, he still apparently preferred to keep things within his own extended family. Remember that the only other significant military commander that we hear of during the final campaigns was Theodore, the emperor's brother. And I should also confirm that, yes, the marriage of Constantine and Gregoria was technically incestuous, but presumably the far greater controversy of the emperor's second marriage left a large enough shadow to hide any outrage. Nine months after the wedding, a healthy son was born, the future emperor, Constans II. Our sources remain scratchy on Heraclius's exact workload during these years, And of course, it goes without saying that he had no idea of the amazing revolution taking place in the Arabian Peninsula at the same time. However, there are three things we should talk about before we usher the followers of Muhammad onto the stage. The first is the change in the emperor's title. Shortly after peace was concluded with the Sassanids, Heraclius issued a law concerning the legal position of the clergy within the empire. At the end of the decree, he signed off as faithful believer, king by the grace of Christ. The traditional way for Heraclius' titles to have been recorded would have read Emperor Caesar Flavius Heraclius Augustus. Or in some cases, Emperor Caesar Flavius Heraclius, faithful in Christ, most serene, supreme, beneficent, peaceful, victor over the Alamanni, the Goths, the Franks, Germans, Anti, Alans, Vandals, Africans, Heralds, Gepids, Pious, Fortunate, Glorious, Victor, Triumphant, Ever-Venerable, Augustus. In the new formulation, though, he is simply king, or in Greek, Basileus. Or rather, in English, it reads as Basileus. In Greek, 
that would be Vasilev's. The switch in title was to remain on official documents for the rest of the empire's history. The most common misconception about this moment is that it represented a linguistic change. You will find it stated as fact in some history books that Heraclius was changing the official language of the empire from Latin to Greek. Now, as you all know, the Romans never had an official language, and in fact it was Justinian, a Latin speaker, who had begun to promulgate laws in Greek because that was the language spoken by the majority of his literate subjects. Nor was the change made to help Greek speakers avoid having to use the terms Imperator or Augustus, because they had already transmitted these words into Greek as Aftokrater and Sevastor. The term Basileus, or Vasilefs, had been used informally in the East to denote the emperor for centuries. The Greek speakers of Anatolia and Syria had long been used to being ruled by the Vasilefs since the time of Alexander and his successors. As there was no direct Greek translation for Augustus or Imperator, the term Vasilefs was applied to the new ruler from Italy when the Romans showed up. Of course, the term king was offensive to the Republican Romans, and so the use of Vasilefs in Greek-speaking circles simply came to be understood as emperor. So much so, in fact, that when the now Greek-speaking Romans had to deal with the king of the Goths, or the king of the Vandals, they used a version of the word rex to denote that these kings were inferior to their own emperor. So why did Heraclius feel it was time to make this change? Historian Irfan Shahid makes some persuasive points. He notes that the switch from Augustus to Vasilefs has led people to ignore the rather important addition of faithful believer, king by the grace of Christ. Heraclius was making it clear that unlike the old god-kings of the Hellenistic period, his right to rule came from God. The emperor was now a Christian king, like those of biblical fame. Shahid also points out that dropping the title imperator and adopting king may have been part of Heraclius' plan to secure a permanent peace with the Persians. The title imperator might still convey that of a conquering general, whereas the title king would suggest that both monarchs were of more or less equal status, both drawing legitimacy from the same kingly well. Shahid thinks that only an emperor in Heraclius's position, one who had just defeated the Persians multiple times in battle, would have had the confidence to make this gesture. It would be possible, after all, for some to suggest that the king of the Romans was now inferior to the king of kings in Tessaphon. But with the Roman army victorious, Heraclius could afford to be magnanimous and suggest equality in the hopes that it would help secure peace. A purely speculative suggestion that I would make is maybe Heraclius's years on campaign aided his decision to go with a shorter and less overwhelmingly formal title. We saw that when Justinian took power, he pushed for senators and other noblemen to bow down before him and kiss his robes, 
and, I assume, use his full titles. Closeted away in the palace, Justinian's insecurity about the way the world perceived him might have influenced his desire to see his subjects demonstrate the full extent of their obedience when they appeared before him. Whereas Heraclius had spent the last decade out in the field, leading armies, meeting diplomats and soldiers personally, and dining with potential enemies and allies alike. It seems possible that Heraclius might have cut short his own list of grand titles in order to better build personal relationships. And of course, once he emerged victorious, his own prestige needed no further reinforcing. Whatever his true motive, increasingly from now on, the emperor would simply be called Vasilefs. However, as with anything in late antiquity, the transition took time, and imperial coins would still say Augustus for another century or more. The second thing we need to note is the situation of the empire's Jews. Again, you may have read that Heraclius ordered all Roman Jews to be forcibly baptized. Now, this is a complicated one. The emperor was a smart, pragmatic man who had spent his career carefully building alliances. So on the surface, this seems like a ridiculous idea. Surely Heraclius would have known it was unenforceable and would only cause misery and resentment. One of the sources for the forced baptism is a story that Heraclius had a dream, or perhaps was told by an astrologer, that his kingdom would be conquered by circumcised men. The emperor naturally assumed this was the Jews, and so attempted to convert or even kill them all. Ancient writers love their prophecies, and particularly ones that are tragically misunderstood, but this is clearly a story written well after the rise of Islam, and so should be dismissed as an unreliable source for this moment in time. On the other hand, Heraclius had just won an improbable victory, directed, surely, by God. Perhaps the lesson to take from this was that it was time to bring everyone who lived within Romania under the sway of Jesus Christ. Heraclius was concerned with Christian unity, as we shall see in a moment. And although the evidence for a forced conversion of all Jews is weak, there is a stronger case to be made that Heraclius approved an order for the conversion of Jews in his former province of Africa. Back in episode 38, I mentioned that Justinian ordered the conversion of some African Jews and the conversion of their synagogue into a church. It's possible that this group were causing trouble, or reverting to their traditional heritage, depending on your perspective, or it may be that the exarch of Africa was just particularly zealous. Or, it's just possible, Heraclius was beginning a slow rollout of a policy he planned to later implement across the whole empire. All we can say for certain is that this was an era when blaming the Jews became very fashionable. I've talked many times about the problems we face with our sources for this period, with the upheaval caused by the war with Persia, and then the even greater disturbance of the emergence of Islam. Historians struggle to be sure of what really happened and when. But from our Christian sources, a great deal of anti-Jewish sentiment comes pouring out during this time. 
Without a doubt, some Jews were thrilled with the Sassanid takeover and took revenge on local Christians. But quite who did what to whom is very hard to discern. And Jews are blamed for both the Persian takeover and then the Arab takeover by our Christian sources. For example, the epitaph of Pope Honorius over in Rome, so a long way from these events, makes reference to Heraclius's efforts to conquer the deceitfulness of the Jews. While the soon-to-be Patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius, wrote a poem calling for the Jews to get what's coming to them. With so much invective flying about, it would be easy to fall into the trap of assuming that Heraclius really did want to convert all of the Jews. It doesn't sound likely to me, but we really can't be sure. The third and final point to cover is the emperor's attempt to deal with the Monophysites. Yes, I know, it always seems to come round to this impossible doctrinal difference. But thanks to the followers of Muhammad, this really will be the last time that an emperor from Constantinople attempts to bring the Christians of the East back to orthodoxy. Once again, I call on you to try and view the situation from a Roman imperial point of view. The legitimacy of Heraclius' office, that of Roman emperor, was now based on God's will. From the highest theologian to the man in the street, it was taken for granted that God, or the gods, directed human affairs. So if the emperor was the supreme power in Romania, then it stands to reason that God put him in that role. That's why it continually disturbed the emperors to have a large chunk of their subjects deny the statement of faith laid down at the Council of Chalcedon. After all, if they denied the orthodox view of God, then what was to stop them denying that the emperor had any right to rule over them? Surviving writing by Monophysites from this period make this explicit as they blame Heraclius's orthodox views for why God let first the Persians and then the Arabs take over the East. God clearly didn't want the Monophysites being persecuted by the so-called orthodox any longer. Having gone to such great lengths to reunite the empire, Heraclius felt the other way. <laughs> that he was not going to live and let live, because from his perspective, God had blessed the Orthodox by allowing him to reunite his flock. So it was time to once again push the Monophysites into accepting the same statement of belief as those in the West did. The formula which he would push was one that he and the Patriarch Sergius had discussed for many years now. It has become known to us as monoenergism. The new statement would stick to the Chalcedonian claim that Jesus had two natures, but ascribe to him only one energy, or perhaps motivation. The wording was possibly deliberately vague, as this was an attempt to blur the definition between the one or two natures dispute that was at the centre of this controversy. It was a solution not that dissimilar to Zeno's Henoticon, and as you can probably guess, it had little effect on Monophysite opinion. By now, the debate about Jesus' nature had become too embedded to be dug out by simple wordplay. However, 
Heraclius's immense prestige did count for something, and initially the new formulation won approval from the senior men of the church. The Pope, the patriarchs of Alexandria and Jerusalem, and even the Armenian church fathers. The emperor knew that nothing was going to fly in Egypt, and so he returned to Justinian's policy of appointing a patriarch who would enforce the new writ with persecution if necessary. The new man was Cyrus, and anticipating the resentment that this appointment would generate, Heraclius took the step of making him both patriarch and prefect of Egypt. This extraordinary promotion reflects the fact that barely any troops could be spared to reinforce Roman rule in Alexandria, and so it seemed safer to invest as much power as possible in the hands of one trusted subordinate. For a moment, then, Heraclius could look optimistically at his realm and hope that the long-wished-for unity of the church could be achieved. It was not to be, though, and in the next episode, we will follow the Byzantine perspective on the Arab invasions. I think I'm going to let the story just continue on from the Byzantine side until 700 AD. By then, I should feel well-read enough to journey back and have a look at the birth of Islam, and only then fill in the details which the Romans were so completely unaware of. If you have a project or presentation coming up and could use a high-quality map or geographic data service, then do check out Leatherman's new website at ldshmaps.org. Leatherman Data Services are history fans and have provided great support to the History Podcasters Network at historypodcasters.com. Thank you so much for listening and for your patience while I move toward a consistent schedule again. Did you know that there are enemies who might one day threaten the history of Byzantium podcast? Oh yes, these enemies are very real, and the podcast needs strong walls to protect it. You see, fortunately, the history of Byzantium is surrounded on three sides by water, so we only need to build one set of walls, but they have to be thick. And you know what helps the cement settle really well? iTunes reviews. Yes, it's a little-known trick, but if you haven't yet done it, I suggest you help those walls grow nice and strong so that the podcast can survive for another 800 years of history. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.